Alright, 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 alright. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back, all. I hope all is well. I hope everyone is doing well. I'm hanging in there. I'm, I'm pretty okay, not gonna lie. Like, as we are ending the month, I'm, like, really okay. Not, not a, not gonna complain about anything. Um, you know, it's winter here in anywhere USA. No complaints or qualms. I mean, it's cold. I mean, I could be warmer, but whatever. It's okay. It's okay. It's winter. I'm definitely wearing my comfies and layers. Cause, yeah. Winter. Anywho. Anyways, I'm totally stoked to be getting back into the swing of putting out more content as I've said in the past I know that I wouldn't be doing this very thing that I love without your listenership and support I know you can choose to listen to anyone I am forever grateful you choose to listen to me you guys are really the best like you encourage me to go hard for you all you do with that being said I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back to partake as well. And so, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Welcome back, Denver, Commerce City, Arvada, Colorado Springs, Salida, and Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Fort Lauderdale, and Boca Raton, Florida. How's it going? Cincinnati, Cleveland, Dayton, Canton, Wooster, and Grove City, Ohio. Good to see you, Franklin, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Rocky Mount, Charlotte, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. How are you, Seattle, Bellingham, Bainbridge Island, Olympia, Everett, and Spokane, Washington? Great to see you, Ashburn, Arlington, Hampton, Manassas, Richmond and Alexandria, Virginia. Mush mush Japan. Bonjour France. Welcome back Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the UK. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Now, here's something super special. Like you guys know I don't do ads anymore because I don't have sponsorship. And that's okay. Like I really don't like the ads. The pst. That was cute. She was cute, right? Remember that from season one? She was cute, but she was really... She was cute. That's all I'm going to say about that. But here's what I'm really about. Like, I mean, like, listen, I would love some great sponsorship if it's more than just, like, just that one commercial <laughs> that got pulled. Like, it didn't get pulled. It didn't get pulled. It got, um, it ended. So with that being said, like... I was thinking, you know what I could also do as well as throw out thank yous is I could absolutely throw out <clears throat> my voice quickly uh, before we get into some episodes. If you guys have any like small businesses or whatever here in the U.S., like, and you guys want to like send me an email, you know how to get a hold of me. Say, hey, Kimberly, I'm in springfield missouri and i make mean brisket or something i don't know what do you guys do out there you know what i mean if you're a listener if you got a small business get a hold of me let me know the deets and i will do what i am doing right now for my good friend michelle who is also one of our 
what had happened, listeners. Michelle is in the Temecula area of California. So my listeners in Temecula, Marietta, Winchester, Winmore, Paris, Hemet, Lake Elsinore, and some parts of Camp Pendleton, California. If you are looking for amazing Mexican food for your next catered event, please check out Taqueria LJP uh, on both Instagram and Facebook. Their link can be found in the link, in, you know, in the description box below, along with all the other links for what had happened, including the What Had Happened Facebook group, where, you know, from time to time, I will share a meme. Like, it's been kind of slow, I'm not going to lie. I've not been really finding any true, but I haven't really been looking either. See, see how I do? I get, but you know what? I've really been like plugging away and also healing. So, anyways, I'll find some more memes, you guys. Don't think guys. I also don't want to reshare the same ones. You know what I mean? I'm like a meme lord, so I take my memes seriously. Anywho, um, in the Facebook group, I do from time to time drop some memes and always drop the new episodes as soon as I'm done recording. So, you know. Hell, I even interact within the comments. You know, if you guys are talking to me, I'm I'm listening. I'm I'm reading the comments, and I want to encourage it. I also want to appreciate, want to let you know that I appreciate your feedback and input for sure. It helps me bring you better content. There's also the what had happened Twitter account that I don't tweet on. It's probably like the running joke, but it's so serious. I don't tweet ever. I know, I know. The IG that I update from time to time. You can see where my order priorities are. And the email address where you can totally feel free to drop me a line or two. There's a Casey that you'd be interested in hearing me cover. Uh, that's how you can reach out and get a hold of me and reach out and touch someone. Mm. All the links, again, can be found below along with my references per the usual in the description box. So... Our last episode was super heavy, and I know this because we talked about this ever so slightly in the comments, and some of you who, like, know me in real life absolutely reached out and were like, girl, <sighs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's... I, I gave you guys that episode a, a little over a week ago. It was on the 16th. And I'm still shaking a little bit just thinking about the whole heaviness of that whole case. So if you're just tuning in or if you scrolled or you walked away and you missed or you didn't do last episode, our last episode I discussed the heartbreaking, disturbing, and preventable systematic torture of Gabriel Fernandez who was subjected to eight months of torture you know by the hands of his mother and her boyfriend for eight months before his murder for today's episode okay I'll be I'll be discussing a young man's series of crimes that were so disturbing and jarring that like one portion of his 
crimes, okay, that's the best way to put this, inspired a few horror films and thrillers. You know, um, Daniel LaPlante was born May 5th, 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts, which is a small town of roughly 9,547 residents like right now. But at the time, there were about 8,000. And this town borders New Hampshire. Like, literal. It's like Townsend and then it's New Hampshire. He, alongside his siblings, were raised by his mother and his stepfather. The family home on... Elm Street was a nightmare for neighbors. The lifeless blue wood framed home was described as unkempt and junky, the yard littered with old cars in various stages of decay. Even as a small child, the community was leery of Daniel. When he was a little tyke, a little far like there was like a local farmer and his wife who hired the boy to help him pick their crop for a little bit of pocket money. And instead, he stomped and, like, stomped through the gardens, like, wrecking the crops. They knew then that he was going to be a handful. And by the time he was 11, he was, like, roughly 11, he and some friends were suspected of robbing a local store. What was happening at home? Well, in his adolescence, Daniel was physically and sexually abused at the hands of his father's biological and step. Daniel's father was said to have administered the lion's share of abuse onto his son, physically, mentally, and sexually. Dumpster juice. Be better to your children. Like, did we not just talk about this? Ugh. Daniel struggled academically, having been diagnosed as having dyslexia. Socially, Daniel didn't fit in with his peers, which, I mean, like, honestly, that's understandable considering there was a shit ton of stuff going on behind closed doors at home, you know, like you tend to kind of like go within. Daniel was the kid who faded into the background. Again, not something that, you know, totally, that's understandable. Hmm. But Daniel's disheveled appearance, lack of conducting personal hygiene, like he was just like, listen, this isn't my words, but this is my words. He was kind of gross. And by kind of gross, I mean like all the way gross. Like he wasn't conducting personal hygiene. He wasn't washing. He had severe acne he was overall super greasy like his hair everything about him was just coated and gross um and listen as somebody who struggled with acne as a child and even as an adult I get it but like listen the like the lack of conducting personal hygiene and like the lack of give a fuck is literally like what tipped his school administrators and stuff like that, like, over the edge. Because, like, 
due to his inability to maintain himself personally, i.e. hygienically, academically, and socially, the administrators referred Daniel to a psychiatrist. <sighs> Let me just get my dumpster juice alert ready. I haven't used this bad one in a little bit, but it's happening. So listen, after assessments, Daniel was diagnosed as having hyperactivity disorder, which we refer to now as ADHD. Now, while Daniel did play football, he ran track and maintained a C average from 1985 to 1986. This is in school. Um, the headmaster-ish person at the Catholic school that he attended or the religious based named school that he attended at the time would go on the record and just say like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I can recall of him. Um, but also after, you know, Daniel had been referred to this psychiatrist who should have been a safe haven right? Like this should have been the person that Daniel should have been able to confide in and who should have been able to try to like help him, um, in some capacity. Like, I know that this was like the eighties and I, I don't know about what having to report abuse was like, but it, I don't know. I should have looked that part up, but it feels like, this man dropped the ball because dumpster juice alert for a year. Daniel was sexually abused by his psychiatrist during their sessions. So there's that. Like I'm seething at this point and we're like two minutes in. While most other kids his age were going on dates football games, you know, parties. Daniel preferred to hang out in the woods behind his home or slink through the night breaking into people's homes. Daniel enjoyed moving things around or leaving indications that he'd been in his victims' homes. At some point in 1986, a 15-year-old girl named Tina became the object of Daniel's obsession. While it's not like really clear how he obtained her phone number, calls began coming into the Bowen home for Tina. The young man on the other end of the phone said he was a tall, handsome football player who had seen her around school and wanted to get to know her better. Tina, who had recently lost her mother to cancer, was, like, super stoked that this young man was interested in her. Like, they would spend hours on the phone getting to know one another, like, and the conversations were, like, light and flirtatious over the course of a few days. Like, she never talked about, like, the fact that, like, her family dynamic had just recently changed she didn't talk about the death of her mother and that her father was now a single parent um, raising herself and her sister. Now, she might have mentioned her sister, her little sister, you know, while she was talking to this guy. But for the most part, you know, they kept it like super teenagey, you know. 
So it felt like the beginnings of like a rainbow. You know what I mean? In like her cloudy skies. When he asked her, when he asked to take her on a date. So like I'm sure she like squealed girlishly with her nine-year-old sister Karen who was always eavesdropping in the corner you know looking at her sister on the phone and also like kind of being like the lookout too because like if her dad was anything like my dad was at that age you know like you didn't really want to be seen necessarily just like talking on the phone with boys and stuff like that like dads don't want to think about their daughters growing up like that and daughters don't really want to hear their dad's mouths about dating so you know I'm pretty sure that nine-year-old little sister Karen was kind of like the go-between she was definitely the bone collector and like the keeper of secrets but absolutely like probably also like the one who was like razzing her sister as well because you know this is what you do so anyways um, you know, Karen got ready for her blind date, and, uh, when the doorbell rang, or Karen helped Tina get ready for her date, duh. When the doorbell rang, Tina sprung to meet the boy she'd been talking to on the phone for days, you know? So, of course, there was a sense of overall disappointment that Tina managed to swallow, when she opened the door and instead of a tall, blonde, all-American, clean-cut jock, stood a five-foot-eight, grungy, thin boy with greasy hair and terrible acne. So, like, she was expecting Billy Zapka, but she got Sid Vicious. And I say that respectfully because I couldn't find really anybody else that, like, actually legit resembled the photographs of him that were in the newspaper at the time and I'm trying to be as authentic as I can anyways yeah so although she'd been catfished by Daniel Tina decided to proceed with their with her date you know like listen chef don't judge it's okay boy we're gonna go out on this date and we'll see what happens who knows? You know, this could be it. So, as the two, like, talked, Tina told Daniel about her mother recently passing away. Daniel took, like, a super weird, invasive, creepy interest when, you know, Tina told him of her mother's death. He was, like, morbidly interested in how much Tina's mother had suffered while she was sick leading up to her death and how Tina felt in the moment of her mother's death. So like all of the hair stood up as he obsessed and continued to like, you know, let's circle back the conversation, let's circle this back to, you know, her mom's death totally making Tina uncomfortable enough that like she like kind of found a way to kind of like she pulled a Kimberly she did an Irish goodbye I'm out like you know like she was probably like yo I gotta get back to the house before like my dad finds out I'm gone well actually no because the dad did meet Daniel 
she probably saw him like, I gotta go wash my hair. I don't know. There's a world premiere of a Madonna video on MTV, and I really don't want to miss it. That would have been my excuse. Oh, jeez. Me and the stick for the dumpster juice alerts. Don't worry. It'll be coming up. So, anyways, she cut, you know, she got uncomfortable enough to cut the date short. The two had spent about an hour together before Tina had found her way to ditch Daniel and go back home. From then on, Tina avoided Daniel like the plague. And Daniel slunk back into the background of life. So Tina like tried to forget the weird encounter with the boy who catfished her. So during the time that it seemed Daniel was no longer interested in Tina, he was in fact ramping up. Like, the rejection, like, he, I, I guess he played it off like he was fine with her not wanting to, like, whatever. The rejection, he, I guess he, he played it off like he took it okay. But, in all actuality, here's what he started doing. Uh, at times when the Bowen family weren't home, Daniel would begin sneaking into their house and doing some renovation renovations they were unaware of. He'd learned the floor plan inside and out and created hidden spaces within the walls, strategically placing peepholes, getting comfortable in the nooks and tiny spots he could secretly observe Tina and her family. Holy fucking shit, right? Mm-mm. In the fall of 1986... Daniel began to toy with the Bowen family. One night, the girls decided to go into their basement and perform a seance in order to contact their mother. They didn't think they'd, like, punch through the thin veil that separates the living from the dead and contact their mother, but they decided to give it a go, you know. Somebody probably said, hey, girls should, like, use a Ouija board or something like that. And one of them was like, oh, no, we are not allowed to do that. But you know what? We could do like a seance or something like that. Or I don't know. Who knows? These crazy kids. Anyway, so they decide to perform a seance. And as they sat together in the basement, they began calling for their mother. That's when the girls were like startled by a knock. So, continuing in astonishment, the girls asked the spirit questions, and it responded with knocks. The girls became convinced that the spirit of their mother was present. The happiness Tina and Karen felt in those moments were about to turn into fear, though. It began with the knocks throughout the night on the girls' walls, that slowly began to drive them literally up the wall. Like, uh. Next, things began to disappear and things like furniture would be moved around, which caused the family to argue and bicker. So the girls thought that they had conjured a malevolent spirit in the quest to contact their mother. And their father thought that the girls were behind the antics basically spiraling in their grief, causing mischief around the house. 
every time the girls would be like, dad, like, this is what we did. And this is what's happening. Their father, Frank, insisted that the girls, you know, like, listen, you girls need to seriously get, we need to get you girls some, I need to get you girls some counseling. And the girls continued to insist that they weren't the ones responsible for the weird happenings in their home. Oh, shit. Then messages like, marry me, and I'm in your room, come find me, were written on the walls with ketchup and mayonnaise. How fucking gross. Frank was fed up, and the girls felt helpless. You know, like, and I can understand both sides, because, like, the dad, logically, first of all, he's he himself is also grieving in ways that his daughters will never understand, and vice versa, but also, he is responsible for his daughters, and he just needs somebody to cut him some slack, and all this weird shit's happening, and as a logical person who doesn't believe in the supernatural, he automatically just assumes that it's his kids, you know, being kids, just being mischievous, so, but he's tired of it, which obviously, wouldn't you be? I would be too, if some weird shit was popping off, and I, ugh. Anyways, so on December 8th, 1986, the Bowens and one of the girl's friends had returned to the Bowen residence, and they lived in Pepperell, which is like right next door to Townsend. <sighs> when they entered the home, Frank noticed that someone had used the toilet, like specifically, and I don't know if that meant that someone had used the toilet and didn't flush or maybe someone used the toilet and didn't put the toilet seat down but someone had used the toilet after they left the residence right and some things were missing and moved around frank made a search of the house when in his shock he discovered daniel dressed as an indigenous person with spiked hair wielding the hatchet Frank kept on his nightstand. Daniel calmly emerged from his hiding place and forced the four into a bedroom. At one point, Tina made a dash through the bedroom window and ran to a neighbor's house for help. When police arrived at 93 Lawrence Street, the crazed intruder had disappeared. Although shaken, the family and the girl's friend were all unharmed. When questioned, neither of the Bowens had recognized Daniel as their tormentor. In fact, the description that was given to police that night by Frank was that of a 22-year-old, 6-foot-tall man. So, no longer feeling safe in their home, rightly so. Frank and the girls left the family home for a few days. So when Frank returned to the family house to retrieve some items, as he walked to the front door, he noticed the reflection of the person who had been in his home before staring at him from within the house. Frank immediately went to the neighbors and the police were again dispatched to 93 Lawrence Street. When Frank greeted the responding officer, he was visibly upset. Frank handed the officer the key to his home and waited. 
Now, initially, the officer was slightly skeptical, but when he entered the home, he found a knife sticking through a Bowen family picture with a message in marker which read, I'm still here, come find me. The officer called for backup. When the chief and a sergeant arrived, the trio searched the home, but they came up empty. Feeling in their guts that the intruder was right under their noses, the responding officer opened a small, triangular-shaped little, like, closety nook that, like, you know, houses pipes. Now, hidden beneath a pile of clothing, and it's like a really tight-ass space. You'll have to go to the references and go, yeah, just go to the references and there's, like, two or three articles that have actual diagrams of the the space he was in. But anyways, so underneath this, beneath this pile of clothing, officers extracted Daniel a plant from inside the tight space. Daniel was taken into custody and he was transferred to a juvenile facility. So after his arrest, officers discovered the tunnels and peepholes that Daniel had created throughout the Bowen home. And it was deeply disturbing. Now, at this time, the Bowens decided to start fresh and, like, relocate to New Hampshire. Now, Daniel remained in custody, um, in the custody of the, of the juvenile facility uh, that he was transferred to for 10 months. And it was in October 1987, two months before he was supposed to stand trial, for his 1986 weirdness with the Bowen family, uh, his mom remortgaged the family home for the $10,000 to bail him out. Now, as soon as Daniel was released, the neighborhood began to hold their breaths again. Like, one neighbor would recall that when Daniel returned to the neighborhood, she observed him constantly going back and forth in and out of the woods alone and that she was leery. There were a string of burglaries that began again throughout the area. During these robberies, Daniel stole handguns and he convinced a family friend to obtain bullets for him. On November 16, 1987, Daniel broke into the home of attorney Andrew Gustafson and his wife Priscilla and their two children, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. So he did his usual thing of moving things around and rifling through their possessions and home. He also stole their cable box and a telephone and some money. On December 1st, 1987, armed with the 22 caliber pistol that he had stolen earlier, uh, he walked, it's like r roughly a mile, it's less than a mile, it's eh, some, near a mile, eh, meh, <laughs> through the woods, like directly straight out of his backyard, through the woods, to the Gustafson home. Now, 
Daniel entered the home and he was doing his little thing when he heard Priscilla Gustafson, who was a 33-year-old pregnant wife and mother of Abigail and William, ages 7 and 5, when, you know, Priscilla and William entered the family home, here's some background on Priscilla. So Priscilla was the daughter of two pastors. And so she, and so she was a very active member in her church community. She was also a nursery school teacher. She was very beloved and the family was preparing for the eighth birthday of their daughter Abigail whose birthday was on December 8th she was also three months pregnant at the time so back to the to the scene of things so Priscilla and William entered the home and Daniel was startled so his initial thought was to jump out of the window and flee, but instead he chose to confront Priscilla and her son. As the pair stepped into their home, they were greeted by Daniel, who was brandishing the 22, and immediately forced the two into a bedroom. Now, after locking William away inside the closet, Daniel tied Priscilla to the bed with her stockings and her husband's ties and gagged her with one of his socks. Instead of running away from the Gustafson home in that moment, he decided to rape Priscilla. He produced a condom so that he wouldn't leave any DNA and proceeded to raping this three-month pregnant woman that he had bound and gagged. When he was finished raping Priscilla, Daniel covered her face with a pillow and shot her twice in the head. After murdering Priscilla, Daniel retrieved William from the closet and and dragged the child into the upstairs bathroom where he strangled and drowned the young boy. Knowing that Abigail would be arriving home from school soon, Daniel waited around the Gustafson home for the little girl because he couldn't leave any witnesses. So when Abigail arrived home, Daniel lured the child into the downstairs bathroom where he actually ripped some of the girl's hair out, strangled and drowned her. Following the triple homicide, Daniel went home and then proceeded to attend his niece's birthday party, where he ate birthday cake and bounced the six-year-old on his lap. Now, while he was observed as being sweaty, and he was obviously wired from the murders that he'd committed earlier in the day, he tried to play it cool in the presence of his family, and, you know, they just kind of took it at face value. Meanwhile, at around 5.30, attorney Andrew Gustafson had been a nervous wreck all day as he pulled up to his home. His phone calls throughout the day had gone unanswered at the family home, and now, although Priscilla's van was home, all of the lights in their home, were, which 
they were out which wasn't normal considering their house was normally buzzing with activity especially like at this time of day so the home was eerily silent when andrew went inside and he headed straight for the couple's bedroom and that's where he discovered priscilla's murdered body in shock and afraid to find his children he immediately ran to the neighbors to call 911. When officers arrived to the Gustafson home, they found the remains of Priscilla, William, and Abigail. It took, like, pretty much no time for the officers to collect evidence um, and to kind of get, like, an idea, like, a glean as to who they thought was responsible just because of some of the things that were present now one thing that daniel used to like to do when he would go to these homes is he would like to pour like a glass of wine or take out a beer and open it but not drink from it and like leave it out or like a glass of milk something so that was kind of like his little signature from the robberies and his harassment of the Bowen family. So they kind of kept that under their lid. But also, when it was time for them to collect evidence, some of the things that they found around the Gustafson home, they found a crumpled pornographic picture. They did retrieve a condom. Now, the shirt that Daniel discarded after murdering the family was found nearby in the woods with a name placard from the family's home. It was, like, wrapped up around it. Or, you know, inside of the shirt. And it was wet. Uh, as well as a wet glove that he had been known to wear that had been discarded. So, they give this to the dogs to take a whiff and sure as shit the dogs brought in to track the scent of the murderer was followed from the Gustafson home to the flower bed on Elm Street where Daniel resided in now initially officers questioned Daniel who said he was home watching music videos on MTV a likely story Although they lacked enough evidence at that moment, like, to arrest him, they sensed that he was full of fucking shit. So, they planned to cross-reference the content played during the murders on MTV with Daniel's statement through the cable company, you know, as far as, like, what videos did you see, around what time, blah, 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 blah. What programming were you watching? Now, while police believed that Daniel was their best suspect they decided that they would return the following day. However, shortly after their interview, Daniel fled into the woods. The state issued one of the largest manhunts in history at the time in search of Daniel. The search of the home Daniel lived in would reveal that <sighs> the family members all slept on mattresses in their room like there was absolutely no furniture. Um... There was hardcore, what they called hardcore pornographic material found in Daniel's, his parents, and his 12-year-old brother's bedrooms. Local police focusing on the wooded area of the perimeter 
um, you know, the perimeter of the wooded area, um, basically said that in no time, sightings of Daniel began. So at one point, Daniel broke into one home stealing a 32. He briefly carjacked and held a woman hostage before she was able to escape. Uh, the two-day manhunt for Daniel ended when officers found him hiding beneath a dumpster. Like, they, like, located the stolen vehicle, and he wasn't too far away, hiding out. Like, they remembered how nimbly-pimbly he was, and how he was able to hide himself and squeeze himself into really tight, weird spaces and stuff, and so they looked under there, and sure shit, there he was. So the teenager was apprehended and arrested for the murders of Priscilla, Priscilla, Abigail, and William Gustafson. When Daniel's clothing was taken in at that time, one of Abigail's hairs was found on his on Daniel's sock. After his arrest, Daniel was under was ordered to undergo psychiatric evaluation after pleading innocent to the Gustafson family murders. And on, of course, once he did that, everything turned out all systems go because on October 7th, 1988, the trial of uh, Daniel LaPlante began. Huh. So at the beginning of the trial, the defense would like call this well, hell, for the whole trial, they called this purely circumstantial, and they also reserved their opening statements for later on in the trial, so the jurors listened as the prosecution's opening statements described the final hours of Priscilla and her children on December 1st, 1987, and what had happened to them at the hands of Daniel LaPlante. A nine-year-old friend of Abigail's testified that she had heard what sounded like her friend screaming when she chased a rabbit into the Gustafson's backyard, roughly around like, well, I don't think they even told us what time it was. I think it was like 3.35 or so. It was around the time that Abigail got home. So it was shortly after they got, shortly after Abigail got home from school, her friend was chasing a rabbit into their yard and that's when she heard her friend screaming and the child believed that the scream lasted about 15 seconds during the trial daniel sat emotionless occasionally he would look up towards whomever was speaking but for the most part sat with his head down hands folded and feet crossed the jurors had a field trip during uh at one point where they toured the trail that the dogs followed from the Gustafsons to the, his family's flower bed. Along the way, it was also they were also uh, directed to look at certain areas without telling them what was found in those areas. They were marked off or what the significance of those areas were. They pointed out all of the markers that were out there that indicated areas where evidence, you know, was found. Uh, at one point, Daniel's older brother would testify to Daniel using his toolbox 
to stash things that he'd stolen, such as the cable box and television, or I'm sorry, and telephone that he stole from the Gustafsons when he burgled them, and also $200 in cash. The defense attempted to paint Daniel as a disturbed young man who was not loved by his family. Uh, Daniel was the scapegoat of his family. And they turned on him, like, because of the fact that they were, well, his brother wasn't willing to lie. Um, by, you know, admitting, you know, this is how my brother's appearance was at the birthday party. Or this is what my brother stashed inside of my toolbox. I mean, like their brothers he had to know that his kid brother was doing licks and he was doing like all sorts of illegal shit when he was running around robbing people for sure because i'm sure he was just coming home with like weird random shit that like they obviously didn't have at home or you know access to just randomness um so of course his attorney tried to turn his brother having integrity basically on him by you know saying you know they didn't love him and they all turned on him no his mother particularly constantly stated that she believed in her son's innocence so after three weeks of trial the jury went into deliberation after the jury returned with a guilty verdict Daniel was sentenced to three consecutive life terms to run consecutively without the possibility of parole, commutation, or furlough. Judge Robert A. Barton's voice boomed throughout the courtroom as he spoke directly to Daniel, saying, quote, There are some who say you should receive the same sentence you imposed on the Gustafson family. That is, death by ligature or hanging. Accordingly, the sentence to be imposed is one that intends you spend the rest of your life behind bars with no parole, no commutation, and no furloughs. That is three consecutive life sentences. On March 22nd, 2017... Daniel stood at a resentencing hearing. After careful consideration of the forensic psychiatrist's assessment of Daniel, that he, it came in that he lacked remorse for the, he still lacked remorse for the triple homicide of the Gustafson family. The judge affirmed the original sentencing of three consecutive life sentences. Judge Helene. Kazanjian said that Daniel's youth played no role in the murders. Therefore, he didn't fall under the scope of convicted juvenile killers who should be reintegrated into society and given a second chance. Now, see, at that time frame, that was something that was um, being brought up again was uh that juvenile offenders like violent juvenile offenders should have the right to you know 
try to be given like a second chance or whatever but the sheer viciousness and lack of remorse even after after 30 years warranted Daniel serve the maximum sentence that Judge uh, Kazanjian could give Daniel. He will not be eligible for parole until he's served 45 years of his sentence. Daniel will be 62 years old at that time when he even becomes eligible to even go up in front of a parole board. Now, although Andrew... Gustafson unfortunately died in 2014 of esophageal cancer. His second wife, Carol, was present at the resentencing. And she said this. She said that she knew Andrew and Priscilla were doing a dance, knowing that justice was really served. So, what had happened is this. I'm scratching my head. Um, so first of all, his life started off really jacked up and I acknowledge that, but you know, a lot of people deal with a lot of abuse and mistreatment and they don't result, they don't resort to doing the things that he did. Um, so basically it's that sickening tale that unfortunately is as old as time where the victim of abuse becomes the abuser. Daniel was obviously abused and let down by, by the two men who were supposed to like guide and protect him, his father figures. And so when those two father figures decided that not being the men that they should be was how they were going to be, I'm trying to like, I'm still sick from last episode and every other episode where adults do horrible things to children, like I... Cause see, they should have been held accountable as well. To be, if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna assign some shit, then the people that abuse the people that abused him should have been called to task as well, because obviously they chipped away at this kid and helped breed the degenerate thoughts and weird shit that he was into and everything else because he was sick as fuck. He was a sick puppy in that regard that he was being abused and neglected and mistreated. Yes, it affected him. It affected him because he was antisocial. He became withdrawn and introverted even though he did attempt to do things like play football and run track he still faded into the background he was definitely a wallflower this kid was like your farmer ted 
You know what I mean? Like, no disrespect to Farmer Ted, because Farmer Ted was actually pretty fucking cool. But, um, you know what I mean? Like, he wasn't... He wasn't somebody that you would, like, glance at twice. On top of, like, his poor hygiene, everything else. So these people fucked him over. But then, like, somewhere in there, he also had some, like, proclivities to, like, doing sneaky, weird shit, like, trampling all over vegetables as a little kid, you know, intentionally ruining a harvest. Um, and the neighbors were like, oh, wait, that's not normal. Like, okay, he doesn't want to be a helper. He wants to be a destructor. Okay, noted. And then, you know, he starts getting into trouble with his friends at a, you know, in young adolescence. And then it snowballs. And now next thing you know, and this is all him acting out. With the abuse that was going down at home. This was all him acting out. And then he starts sneaking around. I hate that shit. Sneaking around like a dirty little asshole. Going into people's houses and shit. Going through their stuff. Rifling through their things. I can't stand that. Whew, that makes my blood boil. Put that up there with hitchhikers. So he goes rifling through people's stuff. And driving people cuckoo bananas low key. Leaving little signatures that he had been there. On top of taking things and everything else. And, again, that's all acting out. On top of the abuse from the psychiatrist, who needed to be disbarred and thrown underneath the gosh damn jail for the rest of his fucking life, too, for being a dirty person. Because I guarantee you, Daniel was not the only child that this person was most likely abusing. Or patient. It could have been an, There could have been adults as well. You know what I mean? Because... You don't get comfortable abusing a child for an entire year unless you've been doing this for a while. And I stand ten toes down, ten feet tall on that one. Don't at me. Um, then this is where... This is more so where the victim becomes the abuser. So first, he manipulated poor little Tina by catfishing her. And I mean, I understand that he had some self-esteem issues because he had not outgrown puberty. And puberty is a vicious son of a bitch, as we all know, as adults, you know, that made it past that molehill. But, you know, he catfished her. He gained her trust. And then, you know, I, I don't know if he would have been more satisfied with her just slamming the door in his face when he arrived. But, I mean, she was kind enough to go out on that little date with him. But it was abundantly clear that, like, he had taken things to the weird zone and when she didn't want to like talk to him after that and that's when again the abuser part because now he starts breaking into her home and doing that sneaky shit I hate so much you know and uh starts 
seeking revenge in the creepiest of ways by starting shit between she and her sister and, like, discontent and, like, bickering and stuff amongst the family members because while at first he, again, preyed on her, the death of her mother, used that to, like, you know, make Karen and she feel comfortable with his unusual presence that wasn't normal in that in that space and then after that he started to just like torment and terrorize them then what the fuck bro the hatchet like being found in fucking cupboards like you know leaving messages that's a lot of that is acting out and so, therefore, he should have been getting actual help because the psychiatrist wasn't fucking shit. He should have actually been, like, committed somewhere in somebody else's care who knew what the hell they were dealing with because all of this screamed mental disconnection with reality. And then, you know... I understand, you know, a mother, I don't know about me, listen, my kids do some seriously horrible shit, I'm sorry babies, but you're gonna have to, like, allow the slow wheels of justice to get you through, like, like legit, like, if my kids actually did, like, some crazy shit like this, I would have made sure that my children were getting mental help, so that they couldn't come home two months prior to trial and then continue to wreak havoc and then the next thing you know a pregnant woman and her two children are dead now let's circle back to when he had his morbid curiosity and fascination with Tina's mother's suffering pain leading up to her death that that's a that's a big tell right there too because i read somewhere that uh daniel had said that when priscilla and william entered the home in that moment he thought about jumping out of the window but then he decided not to. And then he confronted them. Got them, you know, herded into the bedroom. And then when he had William locked up in the closet and Priscilla was on the bed restrained, that in that moment, he knew that he could, he could have and he was going to walk away and just flee but then he decided that he didn't want to and he wanted to instead rape her and then after he raped her he knew that he had to murder her but i believe that he actually wanted to like 
see what it was like to make someone suffer as well as make someone you know kill make someone else feel that suffering and have i.e. William because he was in the closet be a witness even if it was just you know listening to that suffering because that would be more akin to Tina and Karen and Frank as they watched her mother in the end of her illness and then the actual suffering that Priscilla went through and then the end which would be the death I think that he had a fascination with that like he wanted to know what it was like to kill something or someone more specifically and then when he did kill her and he realized you know oh shit he absolutely killed Abigail and William because the two of them were just unfortunately they you know they they would have been witnesses he couldn't leave any but he couldn't leave any eyewitnesses no man left behind it would have been you know too much but unfortunately in his haste and levels of immaturity and everything else when he fled but it is fortunate because it was able that you know officials were able to button this one up you know in a timely manner and get the case solved but um he discarded evidence basically leaving bread a breadcrumb trail from the Gustafson home to his home so he wasn't as fucking smart as he thought he was and then I seductively approved the fact that you know while he wasn't able to receive the death penalty he was given enough time where he would never see the light of freedom or day in any of the victims that he had left in you know left behind in the 80s uh like and none of them would ever be around like they would everybody you know he would die uh, nobody would nope he would never see the light of day they, everybody would be long gone and so would he so I, I approve of that so there's that and I mean it's sad that he wasn't able to come to some sort of remorse for what he did but that speaks volumes about his how his how his brain works and his chemicals and imbalances and whatever kind of labels you would like to put on him and diagnoses which I won't do but it does speak volumes to it um when you lack remorse and empathy for the crime that you committed and it's super hideous and heinous and it's been 30 years and you still can't say I'm sorry 
or I, I really do feel bad about what I did. Like, I realized that I really did some horrible shit. Like, you can't even do that, bro. You really shouldn't be trying to sneak in and some as a weird under a weird condicile and try to fit in where you get, get in where you fit in with a juvenile who commits a violent crime but actually feels bad about it serves a lot of time on their sentence and then is allowed to be reintroduced into society so that they can be given a second chance to be, become a productive member of society I don't believe that Daniel LaPlante wanted to become a productive member of society. He wanted to go back, and if he did go back, there's a high chance that he probably would reoffend because it's just in, it's just in, it's just what he liked. It's what he knew. Period. Holy crap. Whew. Okay, guys, so that was a long one. <laughs> I don't know if it was that long. Let's see what we're looking at. Oh no, it's about average. It's like an hour and five minutes or so. So I'm super glad that we made it through it. We made it. We made it. Yay. We did that. Um, I really wanted to get this last episode out for the month for you guys so that I can do a quick turn and get another one out by next weekend. I'm going to tell you why. Kimberly, why? Why is, why is this upcoming weekend so important? Because we will be celebrating the second anniversary of what had happened to a true crime podcast. That's what. So, of course, I feel obliged to give you guys an episode, which I'm actually working on right now. So, I'm going to let you guys go. I hope you enjoy the content. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let me hit you with some of your outro music. I'll see you guys next weekend for our second anniversary episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast.